Escape Pod 272 December 23rd 2010 Christmas Wedding by Viola Kafton Hello and welcome to Escape Pod, your weekly science fiction podcast. I'm Norm Sherman. Happy Insert December Holiday, everybody. Some of you out there are really into Santa Claus, and you get together this time of the year to celebrate his humble and immaculate origins. Others of you are really into prime numbers, and you're getting together to celebrate the advent of 2011. But the one thing that we all usually have in common this time of the year is that we all usually get together with somebody. While each of us insists on various degrees of ritual, whether it's lighting all seven of the invisible winged Latino man's silver boomerangs or just getting a couple days off of work, it's cool because ultimately it comes down to love and togetherness this time of the year. One other occasion that this description seems to fit is the wedding. Just like your holiday office party at Bennigan's, you want everything to be absolutely perfect, a beautiful and magnificent experience filled with memories that last a lifetime. But also, like Bennigan's, you should always expect the best while planning for the worst. This week's story is A Christmas Wedding by Valar Kaftan. Miss Kaftan writes speculative fiction of all genres, including science fiction, fantasy, horror, and slipstream. Her stories have appeared in realms of fantasy, Strange Horizons, Cheesine, and Clark's World. Her work has been reprinted in Horror, the Best of the Year anthology, honorably mentioned in the year's Best Fantasy and Horror, and shortlisted for the WSFA Small Press Award. Our reader this week can only be divided by herself and the integer one, the lovely Mer Lafferty. So place some poinsettias around the bunkers, because it's story time. Christmas Wedding by Viler Kafton Today was a perfect day, with three flaws. It was snowing here in Miami... One of her brides had trouble recognizing her, and her cummerbund wouldn't stay up. The cummerbund was the only problem Mel could fix. She brushed ashes off the church office's desk and rummaged around for safety pins. She found typed notes for an old sermon, some yellow pushpins, and three tampons. Mel took the tampons and left the rest. Not a single safety pin, which surprised her. For a place that looters hadn't been through, there was little here. Underneath the desk, Mel found a paperclip. After a moment's thought, she opened her pocket knife and cut two holes in the cummerbund's back. She unbent the paper clip, wired the cummerbund together, and attached it to the belt loop on her black jeans. Her bridesmaid poked his head in. How you doing in here? Paul had a fake poinsettia flower wedged behind his ear. Mel laughed, a tense noise that hurt her throat. Paul, where did you get that flower? He grinned and walked into the office. Paul had been a small-town Georgia fireman in sunnier days. He wore a plain gray shirt that exposed his well-muscled arms and new jeans that fit well. Mel wondered where he'd found them. Paul said, I look like a hippie, don't I? Well, a hippie on steroids. You look sort of James Dean meets Roy Orbison. I like the bow tie. I told you, you didn't have to get girly. You can be my best man. I'd rather be a bridesmaid, he said. He hummed the first few notes of I Feel Pretty. Mel laughed again, relaxing into the moment. Paul did a clumsy pirouette, stomping snow from his boots in the ash-streaked carpet. Florida snow was moist and sticky, hard to believe it was so acidic. It was the kind of snow that people used to make snowballs from. I'm stressed out, said Mel. Today has to be perfect. 
No wedding has been perfect, ever, said Paul, stopping mid-twirl and regarding her more seriously. Something always goes wrong. That's the nature of them. But that's what makes them perfect. They're all different. This one is yours. Mel thought about it as she looked out the window. The church was in a neighborhood that had survived better than others. The damage was mostly broken windows and stolen property. A man dressed in black walked across the street, carrying an AK-47. When Mel caught his eye, Jose saluted her through his face mask and kept patrolling. Eight other warehouse members guarded the church, and twice as many were still at home. No one expected the foreign armies in Georgia to sweep down to Miami, but they couldn't be too careful. "'I guess so,' she said. "'There's a damn lot of things that could go wrong here.' "'It'll be fine,' he soothed her. "'This isn't exactly how I pictured my wedding day.' Across the street, Jose took aim at something. A dog scampered off down the snowy street. Mel had read about supervolcanoes once, years ago, as an undergraduate. She had taken geology as an elective to supplement her biology coursework. She'd read about the volcanic activity in Yellowstone Park. Facts had entered her mind as guests into a home. An eruption, 2,500 times worse than Mount St. Helens. Lava and burning gases flowing six miles in all directions from Wyoming, enough to destroy Seattle and Santa Fe and everything in between, enough to bury the American West under 13 feet of pure rock, release trillions of tons of volcanic ash into the atmosphere, and trigger the San Andreas Fault. Yellowstone erupted about every 600,000 years. It had been 620,000 years since the last eruption. These facts were entertaining companions for a while. They served her well at a party that night, where a bunch of bio-students got drunk in a dorm room and compared their favorite doomsday scenarios. Global warming, rising oceans, flooding of all coastal cities, said Carlos on his fifth beer. Unprovoked nuke attack in the Middle East, retaliation, global warfare, said Kate. Mel raised her glass and said, Supervolcano buries the western U.S. and throws the whole planet into nuclear winter. But Teresh won with, American public watches the worst season of TV ever, yet remains enthralled. Government runs amok and no one cares. Everyone laughed and conversation wandered elsewhere. Mel forgot that conversation for the next 15 years. The facts lived in her brain, sitting quietly in the spare room. She went to grad school in Berkeley and wrote her dissertation on trumpeter swan migration patterns. She met Corey, a loan officer at the bank, and fell in love at first sight. She got her first teaching job in St. Louis and brought Corey with her. Mel was 35 years old, and her worries were, in retrospect, small. She wanted tenure. She wanted to buy a house. She wanted to write a groundbreaking paper. Then Yellowstone erupted, and the facts became a nightmare. The guests that demanded every minute of her day and gave no sign of leaving. Someone knocked on the door. Come in, Mel said. Dr. Green spoke as she entered the office. Corey's having an episode. Damn it, said Paul. Mel's heart sank. What kind, she asked. Anxiety? Trouble recognizing people? Places this time, said the doctor, tucking her hair behind her ears. She was the only warehouse member who didn't go by her first name. Mel respected Dr. Green's skills, but found her brusque and condescending. The older woman had never mentioned it, but Mel suspected she had religious reasons to dislike lesbians. The doctor added, she doesn't know where she is. Well, where is she? In the sanctuary. The what? The main worship space of the church? Mel was horrified. In there? What were you thinking? I didn't put her there, 
said Dr. Green stiffly. It was Jess and Hernando. They thought she'd like the stained glass windows. Besides, she had to wait somewhere. The sanctuary had been decorated for an expensive wedding, presumably last year, for the Sunday after Yellowstone. No one had taken anything down. It must have been spectacular once. The bouquets of carnations, roses and baby's breath, tied with red and green ribbons to the wooden pews. The pair of arrangements next to the altar, with silver bells at their bases, might have cost nearly a thousand dollars. Now the ash-stained ribbons held tarnished bells and dried flower husks. Mel thought of Corey, alone in that dark mausoleum where someone's dream had died. "'I've got to go get her,' she said. "'I'll go,' said Paul. "'Old tradition. She wouldn't want you to see her. Not before the wedding. Bad luck. "'I've seen her a zillion times before. "'She's the one who wants to do this the old-fashioned way,' Paul reminded her. "'You might upset her more if you go in there. Let me. I'll talk to her.' "'She does better with Mel.' said Dr. Green. The doctor folded her arms and looked at Mel expectantly. Mel was deeply torn. She wanted to run to her partner's side, but Paul was right. The last thing she wanted to do was upset Corey on her special day. I can't believe you left her alone in there, she said to the doctor. Someone should have stayed with her. She's not alone, said the doctor. Ravenna is with her. Mel sighed with relief. Why didn't you say so? Ravenna can handle this. She and Corey are great together. Mel said the doctor, in a tone that carried a warning. I have been meaning to talk to you. The last thing Mel needed right now was a lecture. She adjusted her bow tie with a sharp tug. I don't have time for this. Hear me out, Mel. I have to speak up. My conscience won't let me be quiet. I don't think you should do this. I... Dr. Green held up a hand and silenced Mel with a look. I don't think you've thought this through. Corey isn't herself, not really. She's heavily brain-damaged, Mel, in a way that people don't usually survive. I'm not even talking about the physical problems. You know what I mean. She doesn't recognize you half the time, nor anyone else. She has trouble understanding where she is and what's happening around her. You know how unreliable her memory is, the anxiety, the depression she suffers? Mel's temper flared. We're all pretty anxious and depressed, in case you hadn't noticed. I don't think you understand how changed she is. If you're going to say something, say it. I don't think Corey understands what's going on today. You're wrong, shouted Mel. She balled her hands into fists. Paul moved behind her silently and put a hand on her shoulder. Mel took a deep breath and forced calmness into her voice. I know, Corey. I've been with her for eight years. You're right, she's changed. But I've changed. You've changed. We all have. I know Corey. I know what she wants and what I promised her. Mel, she's been talking about this wedding all month. She remembers my promise, too, and she understands the risk of leaving home. She knew how dangerous it was to split the warehouse between home and here. She told me she was worried about a raid at home and the Chinese army coming this way. She understands, doctor. She remembers. She knows. Dr. Green clasped her hands in front of her. I'm sorry, she said. It's so hard for you. I know you think this is about your sexual orientation. Don't look at me like that. I hear things through the warehouse the same way you do. It's not about that, I swear. I admit it took me a while, but as I got to know you, I saw that you love each other. I won't separate two people that God has put together. I'm just saying, don't bring Ravenna into this. So that was the real problem. Ravenna matters too, snapped Mel. She's part of us now. It's not fair to Corey. Mel pushed past the door. Screw tradition. Corey needs me. So does Ravenna. She stormed toward the sanctuary. Corey had always dated men before Mel. She looked like a mischievous cherub with fluffy blonde hair and sly blue eyes. 
The women had started as friends, during a conversation at the bank as Mel took out more student loans. It turned out they both liked birds. Mel invited Cory bird watching. They spent hours together hiking in the wilderness with just each other for company. Soon, Cory got Mel interested in her own hobby, volunteer work. Together, they picked up trash along the highway, served oatmeal in a soup kitchen, and sorted clothing donations in a women's shelter. Cory's wicked sense of humor and generous spirit made her irresistible. Mel had a huge crush on her, but tried to bury it for friendship's sake. Hugs turned into kisses, turned into exploration. Mel's friend warned her away from the straight woman, but Mel was firmly in love and certain that Cory wasn't as straight as she claimed to be. Cory moved into Mel's place, and they dated for two years without calling it that. When they were together, Mel felt more like herself. She couldn't explain it any differently. She just felt it was okay to be Mel, to let down walls she'd built in her childhood. And Corey said that when they were together, she felt wanted and loved. One night, Mel asked the question, after they'd made love in an obviously non-straight way. Corey said, There's just one thing holding me back, and it's ridiculous. The afternoon light through the window made squares across their naked bodies. Mel stroked the soft curls resting against her shoulder. What's that? You're going to laugh. I swear I won't. Ever since I was a little girl, I've wanted a white wedding. You know, the whole shebang. White dress, champagne, flowers, everything. I think it comes from being Catholic. I had it beaten into my head, but I want it. I want my family there and all my friends and, well, just the perfect day. I used to play dress up with my mom's bed sheets. I held my veil in place with a tinfoil tiara. Mel didn't laugh. Although she liked the idea of Cory in a tinfoil tiara. So? Cory reached up to rub the top of Mel's head. Well, there's usually a groom in a white wedding. I guess there doesn't have to be. There can be two brides, but I still want the wedding. Does that make me a bad feminist? Mel's breath caught in her throat. I can wear a tux. I'd look better in one anyway. You can wear a dress if you really want, said Cory, with a naughty grin and wandering fingers. Except mine has to have more sparkly bits. I'm the princess here. Mel felt like she was flying. It's a deal, your highness. When Mel moved to St. Louis to take a job, Corey transferred to a local branch of her bank. They rented a small house near the university and registered as domestic partners. They figured they'd do the wedding someday when they had more money. After a while, the wedding became something on their to-do list, somewhere after buying a house and before traveling around the world. On the day of Yellowstone... Sometimes Mel just called it the day. She'd been shoveling snow. She didn't mind the chore, especially in the late afternoon when the holiday light sparkled in the twilight. The weather was clear and cold. Corey was inside, soaking in a cranberry-scented bubble bath. Last night they'd had a low-key birthday dinner for Mel, where Corey had given her a new pair of binoculars and a gold locket. They'd planned to make Christmas cookies together, later. The most subversive thing she could think of for two queer women to do on a Saturday night. In Missouri, the supervolcano was a sight before it was a sound. The western sky darkened. A plume of black smoke rose like a nuclear cloud, then fell and rolled across the horizon. The sky rumbled and the wind roared down the street. A blast of warm air struck Mel's face. Mel put down her shovel and stared, just before the ground shifted under her feet. She threw herself onto the snowy yard and grabbed the mailbox. She clung to the metal pole, protecting her head as houses collapsed around her. The air smelled like gas and smoke. It felt like years passed, although it must have been minutes. When the earth was still, she lifted her head. The front corner of their house had fallen. She rushed inside. Corey lay partly submerged in bloody bathwater, her head underneath a broken shelf. 
Mel dragged her out and emptied water from her mouth, too frightened to scream. She restored Corey's breathing, but couldn't wake her. When she called 911 and got no answer, she bandaged her partner's head with herself with a clean bedsheet. She looked out the window for help. In the streets, people panicked. A neighbor with a ham radio told her it was a volcano in Wyoming and half the country was buried in lava. New Madrid fault ruptured, he said. San Andreas, too, like cracks in an eggshell. Things are bad out there. Mel saw a few choices. She wrapped her partner in a blanket, carried her to the Jeep, and strapped her down in the back seat. Mel thought the day was the best name for it. No other day could really be referred to anymore. Pearl Harbor, 9-11, those were days with names, minor events that could be described with words that went in a history book. The day overshadowed them all. Mel headed southeast, away from the epicenter. Travel was a lawless nightmare, zooming past her both on road and off, underneath the dark, rumbling sky. Mel figured everyone knew this was big. Like her, they held little hope of a place outside the disaster area, not in the United States, maybe not even on the planet. Mel got ten miles out of St. Louis before someone rear-ended her, a crash of metal, a violent shaking, a hot airbag pressed against her face. The other driver, a terrified-looking teenage boy, died minutes after the collision. She and Corey were only bruised, but their jeep was wrecked enough so that she couldn't drive it. She sat by the side of the road, her head pressed against the steering wheel, out of ideas. Mel found Corey in the sanctuary. The room was cold. Snowy air blew through broken stained glass windows. At first, Mel couldn't understand what she was looking at. A pile of impossibly white fabric in Corey's wheelchair, with Ravenna hugging it. The fabric spilled over the chair's arms like a waterfall, with pearl beads swimming through a satin river. It was a photograph from the past, a miraculously clean dress from before the day. Then she understood. Corey was underneath all that. Tears streaked Corey's face. The translucent veil was arranged to cover her paralyzed left side, and her shorn golden curls peaked under its edge. Mel knelt by her side and hugged her, one arm around Corey's shoulders and the other clasping Ravenna's waist. Someone, somehow, had found a wedding dress for Corey. Mel's throat tightened with gratitude. Corey whimpered and choked. Mel kissed her cheek. Corey, we're here. It's okay. You're safe. Isn't she beautiful? whispered Ravenna. Louisa found it in someone's attic, wrapped in plastic. She wanted to surprise us. The dress was way too big, so we duct-taped it together in the back. We found lipstick, too, but it didn't look right on her, so we wiped it off again. She dabbed a lipstick-stained cloth at the corner of Corey's mouth. From this side, Corey's partly veiled face was expressionless underneath. She was shaking, and she hadn't acknowledged Mel at all. All dead, she said, slurring the words. Her voice had the plainness of a child with the dissipation of a drunk. Everybody dead. Dead, dead, dead flowers, dead people. Let's get her out of here, Mel said to Ravenna. She wouldn't go, said Ravenna. She said we had to stay at the wedding because it was the only place you'd find us. She said we all had to stay together. Who's that? asked Corey, her voice rising sharply. Ray, who's that? Who? I'm Mel. Her heart broke every time this happened. See? Look at my fuzzy head. That's Mel's head. You can feel it if you want to. She tilted her head forward, waiting for Corey to rub it. Corey looked, but didn't touch. Where's Mel's necklace? Mel yanked off her bow tie and dropped it. She pulled the small gold locket out of her shirt collar. There it is, see? I, uh, gave that. To Mel. Yes, that's me. You're Mel. Yes. Mel, 
Corey said, and broke into a lopsided smile. We're all here, all, all three of us, me, Ray, and Mel. Now we can get, get, get married. Mel reached for Corey's right hand and squeezed it. She looked at Ravenna. Let's go somewhere else. Where to? Uh, can't do the community room. Tina's setting up the reception there. The hallway is full of everyone want waiting to go to the chapel. Maybe the women's bathroom? There's a little couch and a powder room. Hanging out in the powder room on her wedding day. Well, why not? Fine, let's go. Mel called herself agnostic, but for a moment she'd believed in miracles. The enormous RV pulled up alongside them like a chariot from heaven, gleaming as white as an angel's smile. Cars behind it honked angrily as it blocked the lane. Ravenna leaned out the passenger side, her long black hair whipping in the wind. Need a ride? Inside the RV, the ashtrays were taped shut, and the blankets lay flat on the bed like they'd been ironed. It looked like the vehicle had just been created minutes ago, just to save them. Mel put Corey on the bed and joined Ravenna in the front. Ravenna had the corn-fed goth girl look common in the Midwest. Dark hair and eyes, but rubenesque curves and healthy pink skin. She spoke with sunny optimism, but her eyes revealed pain. It took less than a minute for her to tell her story, while pushing past maniac drivers on the road. Don't worry, she said. We're bigger than they are. We'll win any collisions. I hope you're right, said Mel. So how'd you get here? I was with my boyfriend at a dealership, Kansas City, looking for an RV for Burning Man next summer. Mark was talking to the sales guy inside the showroom. I headed out to the RV for the test drive. That's when it hit. I took cover inside the thing. When the shaking stopped, all the cars and buildings were wrecked, except the RV. I got out and stood there, looking at where Mark had been. I couldn't lift the rubble, and he couldn't have survived underneath there. I saw the dark cloud in the west, cars speeding past on the freeway. Mel didn't know what to say, so she kept listening. Ravenna continued. I had two choices. Either give up and cry, or take the keys and run. I didn't know what was up. Nuclear bomb, maybe? But I had an RV, and a full tank of gas. What about your boyfriend? Mel asked. Ravenna's grin froze. He didn't deserve that. No one did. That was all Mel got out of her on the subject until a few days later. In retrospect, it was the first example of Ravenna's gift, always living in the present and leaving the bad things behind. It was contagious, and it was what Mel needed. They looted a gas station for non-perishable food, bottled water, and plastic gas cans. Ravenna knew nothing about medicine or first aid, but she held Corey's hand in such a compassionate way that it helped Mel feel better. She looks like a girl I had a crush on in high school, Ravenna said. I'll... Mel swallowed. I'll drive a bit if you stay with her. She felt like if she had to look at Corey's injury any more, she'd break down and be useless. Now she had to hold herself together like a vase glued with elementary school paste until there was a time and a place to be vulnerable. They wheeled Corey down the hall and into the powder room, with Mel pushing on the chair handles and Ravenna carrying the vast train of the wedding dress. It took both of them to maneuver the chair with all the trailing fabric. Mel wished Corey could have a motorized chair, but that was a fantasy. The powder room had a thick blue carpet coated with ash. Vanity bulbs lined a wall-sized mirror. The lights didn't work, but at least they were whole. Corey looked much happier to be out of the sanctuary. Mel couldn't blame her for that. Mel wheeled her up to the mirror. You look so wonderful, like a princess. Corey smiled. I'm a funny princess, broken. I drool. You're beautiful, Mel whispered. Ravenna set down the pile of satin and knelt beside Corey. You're the best princess ever, she kissed her cheek. 
My castle is a, a, a bathroom, bathroom castle, with a, the toilet. Ravenna smoothed Cory's veil. Sounds useful. Your guests will always have a place to pee. Mel liked to watch them together. Cory was more relaxed with Ravenna. Mel sometimes got impatient with Cory's slow progress. She wasn't good at watching Cory struggle to name pictures or remember a list of words. It tore her up when her partner couldn't recognize her face or remember how they met. Ravenna was a natural therapist, and she found Cory's determination inspiring. The younger woman had a gentle touch that Mel envied sometimes. Right now, Mel was so stressed that watching Ravenna and Cory made her feel left out. It reminded her of the nagging feeling she had that today would go wrong just like everything else had. Mel finally noticed Ravenna's clothes. What the heck do you have on your head? Ravenna wore a bow tie like Mel's. They'd found them in a theater, along with black pants, a gray lace shirt, and an almost empty roll of duct tape around her arm. On her head, she wore a small white veil, held in place by a circlet of tinfoil and some tape. She laughed. It's the lining from Corey's veil. There's no real place for a third person in this whole traditional wedding thing, so I thought I'd go half and half. Bow tie and tinfoil tiara. The mad scientist goes to prom. Tinfoil, said Corey, and she winked at Mel. Mel knelt down and kissed her. It was terrifying sometimes, what Corey remembered and what confused her. Mel hadn't meant to fall in love with Ravenna any more than she had with Corey. The feelings were like spring cleaning in a house, trying to create more space, and realizing the spaciousness was built into the architecture itself. She had to clear away the junk before she could see what was already there. They made it to Nashville, but the hospitals were jammed. One of them was on fire. The nearby houses showed that the quake had damaged Tennessee, too. Traffic was alternately deadlocked, then dangerous. Visibility was close to zero. Mel and Ravenna discussed what to do. Their best hope was to keep traveling southeast, looking for medical help. They had no way to feed and hydrate Corey without choking her. All they could do was hope she woke soon. A coma could last for days, weeks, and there was no telling how much of Corey had survived. The gas station had provided a good amount of food and water, including a large supply of peanut butter cups that Ravenna insisted on bringing. As she put it, munching on chocolate, I've already committed Grand Theft Auto. If there's anyone looking to prosecute me when the dust settles, they won't be worried about eight boxes of peanut butter cups. Later, Mel would tease her mercilessly about saying, when the dust settles. They stopped in small towns along the way looking for a doctor. They found a kind of pharmacist in Murfreesboro who gave them medical gauze, amoxicillin, and oxycontin. For when she wakes, he said, end times are here anyway. The sky was nearly pitch black as he spoke, and the air smelled like burnt matches. He said there'd been a chemical spill in India, not sure yet whether there were more quakes or if someone panicked. He told them Rocksides blocked I-24 into Chattanooga, and they should try US-41 instead, which led to a terrifying night down a nearly invisible road. Mel thought that the pharmacist was right. These were the end times, and all these years she hadn't believed. She wondered how long it would be until they died, before the waking nightmare turned into sleeping peace. She tried to think about something other than Corey. The only thing that came to her was how ah, all the lovely trumpeter swans she'd studied were probably dead. Corey woke up 29 hours after her accident, just outside Chattanooga. She moaned like she was dying, then vomited on the bedding. She didn't respond to her name. Ravenna supported her while Mel poured sports drink down her throat. It was risky to move her, but riskier not to give her water. Her head wound was ugly, but it didn't look infected. Mel kept it safely covered. In Chattanooga, they finally found a hospital. 
The doctors gave Corey an IV for hydration, but said they were nearly out of backup power. The EKG reading showed Corey would probably live, but would need a lot of rehabilitation. And given the current situation, the doctor told Mel bluntly, there are no guarantees that kind of care will be available. Mel wanted to shake him. Take care of Corey. Help her. Save her. But the supervolcano, long dormant, had woken something in her, recognition that she was on her own, like she'd been for so many years. I'll take care of her myself, she said, folding her arms. Tell me how. The doctor looked like he would argue, then smiled sadly. He gave Mel a five-minute crash course in head injury care. Around them, the hospital filled as more and more people arrived. The three women spent the week together in the RV, Corey sleeping in the large bed in the back. Mel and Ravenna scrunched together on the smaller bed. Ravenna was younger than she looked, only 23, just out of college. Her boyfriend had been a decade older and a successful computer professional. She'd met him in Nevada last year just after her first girlfriend had dumped her. She spoke of him briskly, and for a while, Mel was fooled into thinking she didn't care about him. Outside the RV, everything stayed dark. The volcano was still erupting. The wind made their skin itch and their throats burn, so they stayed inside when they could, even though the vehicle smelled like sweat and urine. Mel and Ravenna took care of Corey, spoon-feeding her applesauce and Oxycontin. At one point, when they were counting their remaining supplies, Ravenna said, Mel, there's something I want to tell you. What? Mel was lifting a flat bottle of water, not entirely listening. I... I was raped. Mel put the flat down and looked at her. Ravenna added, Six years ago. But that's not what Mel was thinking. She was thinking about how it wasn't a non sequitur, how it made perfect sense in context. Shit. I'm sorry, Ray, she said. No, sorry isn't enough. I'm... It's okay. It's over now. I just wanted you to know. I thought you should. Do you want to... No, it's fine. They tried to drown me once, Mel said, not realizing she'd say it until she had. The other kids, I mean. I grew up queer in rural Idaho. Usually they'd just beat me up until I learned to fight back. But one time I think they really would have killed me. She told Ravenna the story she kept walled off and rarely told anyone, about a fast-moving mountain stream and icy water. After that, the walls crumbled. They talked about ex-girlfriends, secret fears, and childhood Christmas presents. Both liked the Great Pyramids, neither wanted to have kids, and each had her own idea for creating world peace that no longer mattered. When, after three days, Ravenna broke down sobbing, it was natural for Mel to hold and comfort her. Later that night, it was just as natural for Ravenna to hold Mel as she cracked open, burdened with the weight of loss and the extent of Corey's injuries, knowing that her partner would be damaged for life. She wanted to forget what awful things she'd said that night, something about, we're better off dead, we should just we should have died that afternoon. Ravenna rubbed her head and kissed the tops of her ears, and Mel cried until nothing was left inside her. They had occasional visitors to their RV, which sat in a Chattanooga Mall parking lot. It was from these guests and the occasional pickup of a local AM station that they learned more details. The western states were a wasteland of igneous rock. Toxins from the Indian disaster were spreading across Asia and Africa. They heard a tsunami had destroyed Japan, but that turned out to be a rumor. Which is good, commented Ravenna, since a tsunami would be the kind of anticlimactic after all those Godzilla movies. 
The ash was the immediate problem, and the most obvious one. It was six inches deep in Tennessee and still accumulating. Ash settled across the Great Plains like snowfall, ten feet deep in some places. Dust filled the air even in Moscow and Tokyo. No one had seen the sun in days. People were dying of particle inhalation, they heard, and the situation would get worse before it got better. Mel and Ravenna welcomed anyone who knocked on their door. Most visitors were well-behaved and accepted whatever food the women spared. Four men tried to steal the RV one night, sneaking up to it with knives in hand. Mel punched one in the face as Ravenna switched the ignition and floored the gas. They thudded against something as they sped away. Mel did not look back to see who it was. After that, they changed cities each night. They used their extra gas cans and headed toward Daytona Beach. The ashfall was shallower there, and driving was easier. Corey was often frightened and didn't know where she was or who she was with. Mel stayed with her constantly, and Ravenna drove the RV. At nights, Ravenna would join them in the back room, and all three women would sleep together. Mel needed Ravenna now. She had a way of smiling that made it all bearable. Ravenna brought hope when Mel had none. After three days, Ravenna commented, We'll be out of gas soon. Not really sure where we'll get more, and even then we'll run out eventually. I'm glad the volcano finally stopped. Think we should park somewhere permanent? Mel was thinking of the men with knives. Yeah, but somewhere safe. I just don't know what will happen long term. This is global, said Mel. I'm serious. Nuclear winter is coming. Well, things will sort themselves out eventually, won't they? I don't know. Maybe. But there'll be a lot of killing until that happens. Last time a supervolcano went, it knocked humanity down to a genetic bottleneck of about 10,000 people or so. Toba catastrophe theory, it's called. Anyway, we're going to need a better shelter and protection than this RV. We need more people. A community. We could head south, said Ravenna. Miami. I've got Burning Man friends there. We should have enough gas. It's a start. At least we have the RV. I tell you, this thing was a steal. Mel laughed so hard her sides hurt, grateful that Ravenna was always, well, herself. She didn't recognize that feeling as love, not until much later. And when she did, it took her months to accept it. It helped to learn that Corey loved Ravenna, too. Paul stuck his head through the restroom door. There you are, he said. They're just about ready in the chapel. What are they doing in there? Mel asked. No one's let me near the place all morning. You'll see, he said with a mysterious smile. By the way, Jake wants to talk to you. He's here with me. Says it's important. Jake was one of the original warehouse members who'd held down the place with shotguns to drive looters away. Mel didn't like him. He was short-tempered and violent, and he made Corey nervous. She'd overheard him talk about hot lesbian action once. He spent a lot of time talking about the next generation of the warehouse and building a good future for them. But he was family now, for better or for worse. And if nothing else, he was strong and young and able to defend them. Mel had to admit that Jake was great with the warehouse's kids. Mel looked at her brides. If Jake had come down from his sniper's nest on the church roof, something really was important. Corey said, Is Mel going away? I'm not going anywhere. It'll just be a moment, said Ravenna. I'll stay with you. Mel will be nearby, I promise. Okay, said Corey. Ravenna stroked her hand. Mel leaned over and embraced both women. She kissed Corey's cheek underneath the veil. Corey looked up at Ravenna, who rubbed the top of Mel's head. Then Corey smiled. I'm not a... afraid now, she said. Mel kissed Ravenna, then slipped out the door. 
Jake stood there with Paul, one hand in the pocket of his beat-up jeans. He carried a sniper rifle under his arm. His hair was ash-gray and snowy, like he'd aged four decades by stepping outside. His breathing mask hung around his neck on a dusty cord. "'I'll go see Corey,' said Paul, as he went into the bathroom. Mel stared at Jake, her guard up. He looked like he was going to say something, and then changed his mind. "'What do you want?' Mel asked. He shuffled his feet. I just wanted to say congrats on the wedding. It's kind of a weird wedding and all, but it's nice to have something for the warehouse to celebrate. I hope God blesses today for you. Mel was taken aback. Well, that's very nice of you to say. But surely he hadn't come off the room just to say that. There'd be something else. Something stupid he'd go and say. All three of you are really sweet girls and all. You're great people. Mel didn't think she qualified as a sweet girl, but she understood what he meant. She relaxed a little. Thank you. It means a lot to hear that from you. I have a question. I guess I should have asked this before, but... You're gonna let Ravenna have kids, right? What? Ravenna. She's bi, right? So she could have kids or something. You could all raise them, no matter who the father was. I wouldn't ask you. I know you're a dyke and all, and I, you wouldn't like to do it, but... And there it was. What the hell are you talking about? Jake looked uncomfortable, like he regretted bringing it up. I just mean, you know, repopulation. She's young and healthy. You three can raise the kid, of course. Mel wanted to swear and punch him, but she held her temper. Get the hell out of here, Jake. She doesn't want kids, and if she did, it certainly wouldn't be with you. I mean it, he said. I hope God blesses your day. I just mean, think about kids. Go away. Jake eyed her and stepped back. He walked down the hallway, past the warehouse members who were standing outside the chapel and out the front door. Mel pressed her face into her hands. Everything about today was tense, wrong, out of place. Something terrible was coming, she felt sure. A blizzard, an attack. There was no way to know, no way to predict it. After a moment, she heard the bathroom door open. Soft, familiar hands touched her arm. Ravenna took her hand and squeezed it. Corey sent me to check on you. Hey, you're sweating. And your hands are like ice. Ravenna drew her hand away. I heard what he said. Mel blew out her breath. I'm sorry, I didn't want that. But I bet he'd just love to have sex with you. Asshole. It's okay, said Ravenna. She took a deep breath. Do you think he has a point, though? Mel stared at her. Are you serious? Well, I mean, about kids. Maybe he has a point. I thought you said you didn't want kids. Well, I used to think that, but I don't know. Maybe I would someday. Mel felt the ground beneath her slipping away like she was back in the earthquake. Are you saying you want kids? Well, fine, have kids. I don't care. I won't hold you back. Find a man and have some. I can't help you there. Mel, that's not what I'm saying. Then what are you saying? Just say it. I'm sick of all these implications around here and the innuendos and no one really says what they mean. I'm sick of having my judgment questioned. I'm sick of dealing with everyone else's issues and problems and I just want one thing to go well for once in the past year. I want something to go right. Ravenna's face closed off. It'll be fine, Mel. Today will be fine. I'd better go back to Corey. Mel stared at her, recognizing the mood she'd seen in Ravenna the day they'd met. It wasn't calmness, but a barrier, a sheet of glass over a choppy ocean. I'm sorry, Ray, she said, her shoulders tense. It's okay, Ravenna said, but Mel felt it wasn't entirely. 
They pressed their lips together, but the kiss was cool. Ravenna went back in the bathroom. Paul came out, scowling. Where the hell did that come from? What? I heard it all, too. Ravenna didn't deserve that. What's your problem? Why are you looking for a fight? I'm not. You are. You're wanting someone to fight. I want today to be peaceful. Everyone wants to preach to me. For someone who wants a perfect day, you have a hell of a chip on your shoulder. It's not for me. It's for Corey. It has to be perfect for Corey. Ha! Corey's happy with today for what it is. You're the one who wants it perfect, but you can't make it that way. Why can't you accept one good day? Not perfect, just good. Mel opened her mouth, then closed it again. Finally, she said, But everyone else, forget them. Paul held her by the shoulders and looked in her eyes. Mel, let today be what it is. Leave everything else behind. Everything? Mel thought about it. The day, Corey's injury, their future dreams, Ravenna's lost boyfriend, a week in an RV, the biggest breakdown of her life. Without the day, she and Corey wouldn't have met Ravenna. I can't leave it behind, she said. It's part of who I am, who we are. Mel loved them equally, but differently. Ravenna and Corey were separate people. Not similar, but not opposites either. Some of the warehouse called them a triad, but that didn't feel right to Mel. A triad implied that each woman was a third of the relationship. But she felt like each woman was more than a third. It was like the colors of visible light. If Mel was red and Corey was blue, then... Ravenna was green, the color they needed for completion. In pairs, they made every color of the rainbow. Altogether, they made the brightest light possible, the pure light that showed every other color in its true form. In Miami, they found Ravenna's friends, a group of ex-hippies she'd met at Burning Man who knew survival skills and sustainable farming. In circumstances, they'd joined up with some gang members who'd taken over a megastore in the Miami suburbs. They'd figured that a good supply source offered the best chance of survival. When people started dying over the next few months of lung disease, exposure, and dehydration, the warehouse did their best to take care of their own. Dr. Green developed a rehabilitation program for Corey, and when the doctor got too busy, Ravenna took over as her assistant. Mel often saw Corey and Ravenna together, their heads bent over a book, reading out loud to each other. At first, Mel felt jealous, then guilty as she felt like her place should be beside Corey. But she was busy helping fortify the warehouse, and she couldn't do more for her partner. Ravenna was much better for the job. When Corey was depressed late at night, frustrated with her limitations, she asked Mel to hold her, and Ravenna too. Corey said, sunshine, and Mel understood exactly what she meant. When all three women embraced, it seemed natural and right, like light coming through an open window. When foreign armies showed up on the U.S. soil, the warehouse strengthened their natural defenses. The community took each day as it came. Every so often, there were arguments, usually about whether Miami was a sustainable place to live long-term, how bad things were in the Eastern Hemisphere, and whether the group should relocate somewhere safer like Europe or West Africa. A few people left. The warehouse was home, though, and the group stayed. Ravenna earned a place in the warehouse because of her friends. Mel showed off her rusty knowledge of supervolcanoes, She predicted the long-term climate change, warned them about acid snow, and estimated a 10-year period of crop failures. On some level, it amused her that the resident scientist of the warehouse was really an ornithologist, specializing in a dead species, no less. At least Yellowstone had wiped her grad school debt. Everyone else thought that the three-way marriage had been Ravenna's idea, something weird from her counterculture past, but the idea had been Corey's. Late one October night, the three women lay together in their king-size bed in the home decorating section. 
Corey had made great progress that day. She'd read an entire page of text without stumbling and remembered details an hour later. She'd already recovered more than Mel dared hope for. More often now, Mel saw that spark in her, the one that felt like the old Corey. Mel, she said, when are we getting married? We already are, Mel told her. She glanced at Ravenna on the other side of Corey, as she always was. Ravenna reached over and squeezed Mel's hand. Mel looked at her partner again. We've been married for a while now. It was sort of gradual, but we're doing all the things married people would do. I didn't get my... my... my wedding. Did I forget it? Mel shook her head. I'm sorry, hon. I wanted to give it to you. And we're not, not, married. I know we're not. Ray's not. Mel was confused. No, Ray's never been married. I want to marry Ray. Mel and Ravenna looked at each other. Finally, Mel said, Ray will stay with us, Corey. She's not leaving. She has to marry, marry us, insisted Corey. I want my wedding, and I want Ray, too. And you, Mel. All of us. Mel's mind unfolded like the pieces of a cardboard box. The next morning, she talked to Louisa, who thought it was a wonderfully romantic idea. She and Jess hunted down a nearby church, one that they thought would be suitable for the event. To Mel's surprise, the whole warehouse got involved. Everyone threw themselves into wedding planning, ex-hippies, ex-gang members, and ex-ordinary people. It was a good distraction from everyday survival. For a while, it felt unreal to Mel. Then she was overcome with worry. Nothing they could do would be good enough for the loves of her life. Mel stood alone outside the chapel. Ravenna and Corey were still in the bathroom. Paul had brought Mel here to wait for her entrance. Someone had swept away the ash, and the howl was cleaner than the rest of the church. Mel still felt tense and angry, like if one more thing went wrong, she'd break down. Don't be silly, she told herself. You've been through much worse. True, another part of her said, but this is supposed to redeem it all. The music rolled out through the hallway. Amazed, Mel listened to the notes, like something from childhood memory. A piano, a nice one from the sound of it, playing Here Comes the Bride. Where did a piano come from, and who was playing it? Paul opened the door for her, fake poinsettia still behind his ear. Everybody's ready, he said, smiling. Come on in. Mel's eyes widened. Through the door, she saw hundreds of poinsettias clustered around the small chapel. The red and green centerpiece on the altar blossomed like a holiday garden. White candles wreathed with pine flickered on the sides of the pews. Collage work covered the walls. Thousands of pictures carefully clipped from bridal magazines. Green garlands edged the window at the chapel's sides, framing the snowy scene outdoors. Red and green ribbons draped down from the ceiling, connected to a splendid cluster of... Mistletoe! she exclaimed. Paul laughed. We thought you three might need an excuse to kiss each other. Where did you get all this? From all over. We've been working hard. The worst part was trying to keep it a surprise. It's amazing, Mel whispered, turning her head so she could take it all in. The room smelled like gingerbread air freshener. In the pews stood 43 warehouse members. Mel saw their faces smiling at her. Jess, who taught her to cook on an open fire. Okapi, who'd listened to her late one night when she needed to talk. Yusuf, who'd built the simple machines Cora used for her physical therapy. Dr. Green was playing the piano, she noticed with surprise. So many people were here, all watching her, the shorter people straining on tiptoe to look over the crowd. The warehouse kids were in the front rows, where they could see everything. Too late, 
Mel realized she'd left her bow on the sanctuary floor. Damn it. She wanted to run and grab it, but the music was playing and she was supposed to go in. Her eyes dampened. She looked at Paul. His eyes were filled with love. It was the same love from all the people inside this chapel who dedicated weeks to creating the perfect day for her. They'd done all this for her, all this gorgeous hard work, and she'd lost her damn bow tie. Mel touched her neck, trying to decide what to do. Paul saw the gesture and ran out the door, looking at the floor as he went. Mel tried to explain where it was, and her throat choked. Screw the tie. I'm going in, just like I am. She marched down the aisle, feeling all eyes on her. She held her head high. The walk to the altar was short, about twenty steps, but felt like forever as her heart pounded. Mel planted her feet firmly on the floor before the altar. Louisa, their impromptu minister, leaned forward and hugged her. She whispered, Do you like the place? It's incredible, said Mel. And that dress for Corey. Louisa's face was already red and blotchy. Berta would have loved a wedding like this, she said, and smiled at Mel. She took a Kleenex out of her pocket and dabbed at her eyes. Mel remembered that Louisa's daughter had been engaged. She'd lived on the Air Force Base in Colorado Springs. Mel touched Louisa's shoulder in sympathy, but the older woman shrugged her off. None of that now, she said, still smiling. Berta is watching, you know. Mel nodded. The music kept playing. Mel turned to face the back of the chapel where her brides would arrive. They'd planned an entrance, rehearsed it a few times, but everything was going crazy today. Where were they? Had something happened to Corey? Another episode? Something worse? Was Ravenna still angry at her? She couldn't be so angry that she'd leave now. Would she? Paul raced through the door and saw Mel at the altar. He paused, the bow tie dangling in his hand. Finally, he walked up the aisle and offered her the tie. He turned to the audience. Sorry I'm not a blushing bride, he said. Laughter swept the room. Paul took his place next to Mel. She was glad he was there. Mel had a lump in her throat as she hooked the bow tie into place. She stood there for what felt like hours, listening to Dr. Green patiently play Here Comes the Bride on repeat. The crowd was restless. Mel took a deep breath. Paul was right. Whatever happened today, it was hers and Corey's and Ravenna's. White light against darkness. Past the windows of the chapel side, the snow fell heavily. The wind picked up outside, blowing dirty snow against the streaky glass. We now interrupt the wedding in progress to have a blizzard, someone called from the audience. Even Louisa cracked up. Mel forced a smile. The crowd talked among themselves above the piano music. Overhead, she heard someone walking around on the roof. Boots, heavy ones, maybe Jake's. What if something was happening out there? Paul, where are they? Mel asked. Relax, he said. It'll be fine. They'll be here in a minute. I'm scared, she blurted out. What if it all goes wrong? Paul sighed. Want me to see what's happening? Mel almost said yes, then paused. It already has gone all wrong, but we're still here, aren't we? She shook her head, glad that Paul was there with her, glad for this moment. And then her brides were at the chapel door. The audience fell silent, leaving only the music. Corey's wedding dress was tacked to the chair with three long strips of duct tape. Ravenna grinned, held up the empty roll in triumph, and tossed it aside. Mel wanted to laugh and cry at the same time. Of course they hadn't practiced with the dress. They hadn't known there would be a dress. Ravenna couldn't move Corey alone, so she'd had to improvise. That's what we do, Mel thought. Just work with what we've got and do the best we can. Ravenna pushed Corey down the aisle. Both were the most beautiful women in the world, each in her own way. 
Their faces shone in the candlelight. Ravenna's held forgiveness and love, while Corey's radiated a joy brighter than anything Mel had ever seen. Thank God, she thought. No, a mischievous side of her answered. Thank the divine RV. Mel broke into laughter as her brides arrived, a genuine joy she hadn't felt in months. The three of them held hands in a circle, then turned to face the altar. Everything had gone wrong. Today was perfect. Rituals generate the expectations that open doors for things to go wrong. Whether you expect presents on Christmas morning, perfect skin on your wedding day, or regular, predictable, innocuous volcanic activity from your state parks, you're setting yourself up for disappointment eventually. The good news is that when things do go wrong in these special occasions, you can usually say, screw the tie, I'm going in just like I am, and find yourself surrounded by people who, fortunately, like you just like you are. The world is an imperfect place, people. In order to have prime numbers, we have to have a lot of other ones, too. Remember, even Santa Claus was born into a world of iniquity, and he rose above it all to give out loaves and fishes and eventually toys to the masses. Let that be a lesson to us all this holiday season. Let's go now to our assistant regional manager, Bill Peters, for some episode feedback. Hello, faithful listeners. I'm here with feedback for episode 264, St. Darwin's Spirituals by D.K. Thompson of uh, Podcastle. I feel like I've heard of that before. Um, huh. Anyway, and read by R. Mer Lafferty. The spirituals in question are of far more ghostly nature than we here at Escape Pod normally allow within our vacuum-tight doors. But, you know, Halloween. Also Darwin, who deserves beatification if there's any real justice in the multiverse. Laws, following on a point raised by unblinking, that Darwin didn't really study anything that close to ghosts, unlike certain alchemical discoverers of applied gravimetrics, said, I think that was to emphasize the difference between their reality and ours. They have a reality in which ghosts exist, unlike ours, and it just so happens that Darwin figured that out too. Perhaps the life you lead determines how strong and together a ghost you are? Electric Paladin, who teaches middle school biology and should thusly be pitied and praised in that order, defended the use of Darwin, saying, I spend weeks struggling to communicate the concept of evolution to kids with very little background in science. Thanks, standardized testing. And some whose parents do believe in creationism and its kin. And I have no problem with a story that pokes fun at Darwin and his beliefs. It was a fun, clever, quirky little gem of a story, and it brightened my morning. I particularly enjoyed the layered and bizarre world the author built, Lucy and her denial, and the concept of ghostgasms. The ghost eater was particularly fun and evocative as well. And that's it for this week. Tune in next week for the feedback for episode 265. We are Ted Tescadero for president. Thanks, Bill. So, this is the part of the show where I ask for your donation support. Remember, Escape Pod relies on that mess to keep going each week, paying authors professional rates for their top-shelf stories and then producing those top-shelf stories in audio. Ask yourself, WWKD, what would Kringle do? 
Well, I'm certainly no scholar, but I reckon he'd at least throw a couple bucks in the hat for all that free science fiction he so dearly loves. Check out our donation options at www.escapepod.org. So, that's our show, everybody. From all the crew here at Escape Artists Incorporated, have safe travels and good tidings and such forth hence-wise. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Our music is used with the permission of Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.org. And our closing quotation this week comes from the great Stephen Wright, who said, Tinsel is really just snake's mirrors. Mm-hmm.